Brothers, allow me to welcome you all once again on behalf of the session of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. Uh, it is the purpose of the elders at First Church that this annual gathering be a blessing and an encouragement to you and your ministries. And that's been our prayer for you in the weeks leading up uh, to these days and for our time together. Now, every year at the beginning of the fellowship, I have the opportunity and the privilege of addressing a few words to you by way of exhortation and encouragement. Most of us, I think, gather this week in the midst of uh, very busy schedules. Many of us are carrying significant burdens. Perhaps not a few of you are here wondering if the cost of taking these days out of the routine of ministry where the Lord has planted you is going to be worth it. Uh, There's a lot weighing on you. Your mind is pulled in a number of different directions. Some of you are fighting discouragement. Maybe you've grown weary in well-doing and are on the brink of losing heart. Well, in those times, my question has been, what do these brothers need and what do I need? What do we need most? As a minister of the gospel, what do you need? As a Christian man, what do you need? Well, allow me to suggest that I think we need at least three things, uh, all of which together help describe the mission and the ministry of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. First of all, we need refreshment, don't we? we need, we're here and we urgently need to be refreshed. We're here to be encouraged and reinvigorated and then sent back to our spheres of service with renewed energy and enthusiasm for the task. We need refreshment. Secondly, uh, we need reminders. At least I need reminders. Charles Hodge, I think it was, used to say, used to boast that nothing new came out of Princeton Seminary in his day. Brothers, I'm persuaded that what we need most is not a seminar on the latest approach or a talk on a new or innovative program. I need taken back to the basics again. Don't you? I need reminding of the fundamental patterns of biblical ministry and Christian faithfulness. And then thirdly, we need, at least I need, recalibration. That is to say, we need our gaze redirected and refocused on what really matters. We need help. I I need help to look up and away from myself and from the trials and the burdens that I carry to see again the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining upon us in the face of Jesus Christ. We need refreshment first of all. Let's think about each of those a little bit more. We need refreshment first of all. The Twin Lakes Fellowship is not about church politics. It is not a caucus for a particular ecclesiastical agenda. Allow me, if you would please, just for a moment to speak plainly. I don't know about you, but I have found that a constant preoccupation with the latest ecclesiastical controversy, no matter how important the issues involved may be, a constant preoccupation with the latest ecclesiastical controversy has a soul chilling effect on me. 
It is a very effective way of stifling an atmosphere of fellowship and the mutual encouragement that we need from one another to look to Christ and feed on Christ by his word and spirit. And I am I'm persuaded that one of Satan's favorite strategies when we strategies when we gather together in these times for robbing us of lasting spiritual benefits is uh, is in precisely this area this direction now let's be clear i think there are real battles to be fought in the current ecclesiastical landscape and we do need to understand the issues and be ready to engage with them when we are called upon to do so with clarity and wisdom and generosity of spirits. But that is not the mission of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. So let me invite you, for your own soul's sake and the soul of your brothers sitting around you, let me invite you, especially in your times of relaxed and informal fellowship around our various meetings, to strive for conversation that aims at the encouragement of your brothers. Twin Lakes Fellowship is not a caucus for a particular ecclesiastical agenda. It is a place for our mutual encouragement and growth and grace. But neither is the Twin Lakes Fellowship a conference among other conferences. We have no interest in simply bringing the same handful of speakers to a platform in order to fill an auditorium with edifying talks. Conferences like that, I think, have their place. Our vision, however, is for something we hope will be more enduring in its effects in your life and in your ministries. We are purposefully a ministerial fraternal, and our goal is to foster deep, lasting friendship for gospel ministers. We want this to be a place of refuge, a source of refreshment, and we believe one of the means that God has ordained to get that done in our lives is the fellowship of like-minded Christian brothers. We need each other in the trenches of pastoral ministry. Haven't you found it to be true that there are very few things so effective for keeping us on the tracks and moving forward faithfully. Very few things more effective in getting that done than a band of brothers who will love you well, who will challenge you regularly, and who will constantly encourage you to press on. And we want Twin Lakes Fellowship to be a place where bands of brothers like that can begin to spring up and multiply. And we have... Uh, some, I think, exciting opportunities to see that begin to happen coming and some proposals for you that you'll hear about in due course over the next few days to help that begin to happen throughout the year. So we need refreshment. Twin Lakes Fellowship, my prayer for you, as it is for my own soul, is that the Lord would meet us as much in the ministry of the Word as in our times informally of fellowship and encouragement together that the Lord would meet us and we would be refreshed and renewed and reinvigorated in these three days. Then secondly, we need reminders. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy 2.14. 2 Timothy 2.14. 
see how Paul writes to his young protege to, quote, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now, scholars, I think, debate the point, but probably the things about which Timothy is to remind them are truths that are found back in the preceding verses 8 to 13. We can summarize them under three headings. There's a message, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. There's a message that he's to remind people of. There's a model, verse 9, the gospel for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul wants to set before Timothy a model of pastoral endurance and faithfulness in the worst of times, knowing the gospel is not bound. There's a message, there's a model, and then uh, there's a motto that sums up Paul's uh, pastoral commitments and his convictions. Verses 11 through 13, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So Paul reminds Timothy, and he urges Timothy to remind others of the gospel message focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, of his own model of gospel ministry, suffering all things for the sake of God's elect. And he sums it all up in a, in a motto in these few, li- these few lines that urges our faithfulness arising out of and in light of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, none of those things were uh, new are new now, and they weren't particularly new then. They weren't new to Timothy. They weren't even those uh, new to those who were troubling the church in Ephesus. They ought to have known them. Timothy is therefore to remind them of these truths. But the reminder is nevertheless vital for Timothy and vital for those among whom Timothy ministered. And we need reminding too, at least I do. I need reminding of gospel basics like this. I need good models set in front of me. I need the fundamentals pressed upon me. I need called back again to the ABCs of the Christian life and of Christian ministry over and over. That's what Paul is doing with Timothy and urges Timothy to do in Ephesus. If you'll take your booklets out for a moment and look in the back few pages of the Twin Lakes Fellowship booklets, you'll see the 15 points that articulate the vision of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. They were written by Dr. Ligon Duncan back when all of this began. And they are by no means an exhaustive statement. They are not trying to be. Many important things are missing from these 15 points. But they are things we need reminding of, aren't they? Things that are often overlooked, neglected, distorted, abandoned in the church in these days. We sometimes talk about an ordinary means of grace ministry or model of ministry. And uh, these 15 points, I think, get at something of what we mean by that phrase. Would you look at them with me for a few moments? These are some of the things as a fellowship we're seeking to be reminded of, the 
the ABCs and the basics of biblical gospel ministry. First of all, notice we stand for expository Bible teaching. We believe that the church and the world need nothing so urgently as bold, passionate, faithful, systematic exposition of the whole counsel of God, book by book, verse by verse. Now, I think it's commonplace today for almost every sort and stripe of evangelical church to say that they do expositional preaching. So let me be clear about what we mean by expositional preaching. We mean the careful commitment of the preacher to drive his hearers to attend to the words on the page of Holy Scripture, to show the meaning of each part and to connect each part to the whole, and then to apply the message of the text, at showing how it points to Christ, to apply the message of the text to the hearer in a way that is itself consistent with and arises out of the text itself. Because we believe the power is in the word, not in the man that preaches. The text is king. Not the perceived needs of the flock that drive the preacher in this direction or that. Not the whim or personal passions of the preacher. The text is king. I saw somewhere a comment. You might have seen it too. I think it was Kevin DeYoung who said it. Something like, if your people can follow your preaching with their Bibles closed, you're doing it wrong. Right? Isn't that right? If your people can follow your preaching with their Bibles closed, you're doing it wrong. Expositional preaching. Secondly, and I think wedded to that conviction, we want to continue to articulate and advocate for biblical worship. The genius of the Reformed tradition is its determined submission to the authority and sufficiency of Holy Scripture for all of life and for worship. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the commandments and doctrines of men so that the acceptable way of worshiping God is articulated by the Bible itself and beyond its instruction, we have no warrant to go. We long to see a joyful, rich, theologically robust, scripturally informed worship spreading like a, a, a happy infection around our churches. As Ligon puts it in the booklet, much of what is amiss in modern worship practice would be corrected if we took for our principle of direction, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible, preach the Bible. Now, that, of course, must entail, among other things, in the third place, inclusive psalmody. The Psalms provide, as Calvin famously put it, an anatomy of every part of the soul. The Psalms so often exegete us, don't they? We find ourselves exposed as we read through the Psalms. The full array of Christian experience 
is there. They offer us vocabulary when we have no words. Now, where in our hymnals, even the Trinity hymnal, where in our hymnals do you turn for a lament? Psalms are full of lament. Sometimes we need words to help us lament. Uh, If you've not read Carl Truman's excellent little essay, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Fever and uh, read it. He will point you to the Psalms. Now, we do want our sung praise to be unambiguously Trinitarian and richly Christological, and we believe the New Testament itself leads us to hymnody that should supplement the Psalter. But there is something, I wonder if you'll agree with this, there's something terribly wrong in churches that confess the Bible to be the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God when the biblical psalms have all but disappeared from our worship. Then fourthly and fifthly, taking these two together, we want to advocate for morning and evening worship and for a heartfelt embrace of a rich theology of Lord's Day experience as articulated, for example, in the Westminster Standards. These two points, I think, should go together. A high view of the Sabbath day and a deep love for the Word of God, read, preached, prayed, and sung, ought to lead us to want more of the worship of God and the fellowship of the saints and the means of grace on the Lord's Day, not less. When the Word has its way in the hearts of His people, what ought we to expect but a growing appetite for more? Sinclair Ferguson, in his excellent new book on sanctification, which I noticed is in the bookstall, Devoted to God. It's a tremendous book. If you haven't read it, do pick it up. He remarks that when the same people in roughly the same numbers attend an evening service, even though the morning service is the one often referred to as the main service, it is the evening service, they will tell you, is the high point. I wonder if you find that, those of you who have evening worship services. It's the evening worship that is the sweetest and the richest, and the most soul-stirring, and the most encouraging, where there's most of a family atmosphere as the people of God gather to receive the words. And uh, Ferguson suggests that one reason for that is that in the morning we come, as it were, straight from the word, a world, straight cold to worship. But by the evening we've already Uh, received some of the ministry of the Word. It's begun to have its way in us so that we come already warm, already with our appetites whetted and looking for more. Let me quote him. He says, Some degree of this transforming of our lives through the renewing of our minds has already taken place. We find ourselves, as Jesus prayed we would be, cleansed and sanctified. Our thinking has been recalibrated in a Godward direction. Our affections have been cleansed and drawn out in love for our Lord. Our desires to serve Him are purer. Our affection for God's people, our affections for God's people are greater and our wills are more submissive to His Word. The more we are thus fed, the more we want to be fed and to feed. The more the Word has its way, the more of the Word we will want. What does it say about our churches when the preaching of the Word uh, is uh, decreasing 
opportunities to hear the preaching of the Word is decreasing rather than increasing, when there are less opportunities for God's people to come and be together around the means of grace. Then uh, sixthly, along with the need for a recovery of evening worship, isn't there also a need for recovery and for help in family worship? The church, I think, is no adequate surrogate for faithful, godly parents nurturing covenant children in the things of God. There is, of course, a, a, a symbiotic relationship between all of these things, preaching, biblical worship, morning and evening services, a high view of the Sabbath day, and family worship. Our neglect of family worship weakens our enjoyment of public worship. And the decline of public worship results in spiritual decline in families and in our individual lives. Now, with the attack on the family at all-time new heights in our culture, has it ever been more important to equip parents to model and minister to their children in Jesus' name? Family worship. Then, seventhly, there's biblical theology or Westminster Calvinism. A hero hero to many of us is uh, Dr. Harry Reader who sometimes talks about the great problem of a lack of confessional integrity in our churches. Brothers, let's do more than merely subscribe to the theology of our standards. It is, if it is as we believe it is, the teaching of the Bible, then the riches of gospel truth contained in it ought to inflame our souls and inform our ministries. Let me quote Ligon again. He says, as long as we merely acquiesce to the standards, as long as we merely acquiesce to the standards without personally embracing them as a compelling summary of biblical truth, a strengthening destructive diversity will continue to emerge. We'll start to pull at the seams in different directions. Our confessional theology ought not to be a mere shibboleth. It ought to be the lifeblood of our ministries. And that theology, of course, has consequences, doesn't it? Or at least it ought to. Too often, I suspect, we measure our devotion to Westminster Calvinism or to biblical theology by the party to which we belong or by the books on our shelves, or even worse, by the Twitter feed to which we contribute. But what if the true measure of our embrace of Westminster Calvinism was actually zeal for the conversion of sinners and a passion for global evangelism? What if the index of how far our views of God and Christ and man and the gospel biblical Calvinism, what if the index of how far that has truly penetrated to the core of who we are is the degree to which it propels us out to reach the lost with urgent pleas that they might be reconciled to God? Measured by that standard, how are we doing really in our devotion to biblical theology, brothers? How are we doing really? How many of our churches 
appear at least to be functionally hyper-Calvinist, affirming truths, but with no concern for the lost who are dying for want of the gospel everywhere around us. Zeal for the conversion of sinners, a commitment to multiplying churches that embrace these same convictions that will continue to replicate themselves with joyful, happy, unapologetic, biblical, robust theology. Saying this is life, this truth changes everything. And here are others who have been gripped and changed by it. Come and join us. Still another implicate of the theology we confess has to do not now with how we reach out to the unconverted. Doesn't it also have to do with our own hearts? And so as you'll see, the Twin Lakes Fellowship seeks to call us back to, to equip men for a life of ministerial piety. Ministers ought to be holy men. Do you believe that? Not just authentic men. Authenticity is not a substitute for holiness. We ought to be men of God who feel our want of holiness keenly and who are pursuing Christ zealously that we might be more holy tomorrow than we are today. Ministers are to be holy men. Now, brothers, let's be honest. We handle the sacred text day in and day out in order to prepare sermons and do ministry. But if we're not watchful, the word will become little more than a text from which we come to strip mine data for our work. Have you found that happening in your ministries? I I have found that in mine. There's that temptation. You get in the busyness of it all. And uh, you find yourself not feeding on the word. It's not... It's not oxygen that I need, to, I need to breathe in in order to function. It's not living water for my soul parched soul. It's a tool in my trade in order to do ministry to others so that I end up, if I'm not careful, limping, wounded, shriveled, desiccated, showing others where to find life, where to find remedy, healing, where to drink and never need to drink again, and not drink myself, not go to the physician myself and be healed. So brothers, we need to be called back to a life of holiness, of repentant, believing, Christ-dependent pursuit of holiness. Then there are three specific doctrinal points, if you look at the booklet, that are part of our our commitment, that these are things that we advocate for, a biblical understanding of the gospel, of God's law and sanctification, and of conversion and discipleship. That is to say, we need to make no uncertain sound when it comes to the message that we must proclaim the way in which a person becomes a Christian and what the Christian life ought to look like when they do. Now, there is an array of fuzzy definitions of the gospel out there that are so general that they're unfalsifiable. They might be true, but I'm not entirely sure what they really mean. 
So I can't falsify them. I can't tell you for sure that they are not true. So let's be crystal clear together what we mean by the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has acted to save guilty sinners in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. That is our message. The cross has paid in full. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Repent and believe the gospel. That's our message. And we are to take it and go to the nations and invite all people everywhere to come to this Jesus who died for sinners. And then when by God's grace they come in answer to the call. Let's be clear that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That God's law no longer condemns them. It is no longer the voice of the judge indicting them, summoning them to the bar with the list of their crimes. The law of God never now functions in the Christian life as the voice of the judge. It is always now for you the voice of Abba Father. Even when it's exposing sin and calling you back to repentance, it's not the voice of the judge anymore. It's the voice of one who cares and loves you, who has adopted you into his family, who is a friend to you. The law of God for the Christian is always always the Christian's friend. That is to say, as we do Christian discipleship, we need clear teaching on the third use of the law to help God's people love the law and seek to walk in obedience. And then there's two statements there about the church, church membership and church discipline. And I think those are really shorthand ways to talk about the sphere within which Christian discipleship ought to be lived out under the watch care of faithful elders shepherding the flock. Now, I still, you may do this as well, I still regularly meet people in our congregations, my congregation, who are skeptical or unclear that there's any biblical basis for such a thing as church membership at all. In our churches... And I meet people regularly who have never seen, let alone received, the formative and corrective discipline of faithful elders. Healthy churches can't exist without either, though, can they? Is it really possible to be a healthy church that doesn't practice biblical, clear church membership patterns, including faithful church discipline and the shepherding work of elders? Don't you think we have some work to do in those areas? We do at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. I'm sure you do too. And then finally, we want to promote a reformed worldview. That is to say, we need to think deeply about the worldview implications of our theology for our ecclesiology, for our view of society, for our thinking about mission, for our approach to the family, our pastoral practice on such questions as the LGBTQI issue for the way we are to live out our faith in the workplace and a whole array of other problems. An atomistic problem-by-problem approach that focuses on one issue at a time will always be inadequate to minister the word faithfully to the flock or, for that matter, to reach the world faithfully for Christ. 
This is, I think, a short, these 15 points are a short, not exhaustive statement of what we think the Bible teaches about faithful ministry. And we are here together today to be called back to these old paths, back to the basics, back to the familiar pattern. This is not innovation. These are the ABCs of a simple, ordinary means of grace-centered model of ministry. So when you're tempted in your weariness to look for something flashier, to look for a shortcut, to look for the latest program or technique that you can leverage to multiply things and make it move along a little faster, I believe and we want to encourage you to hold fast to these old paths, that this is the, this is the channel along which God has ordinarily purposed to bless faithful ministry. Hold your course. Hold your course and see what the Lord will do. So we need to be refreshed by a band of brothers. That's what we want these three days to be. We need reminded of the fundamentals, not of something terribly sophisticated, but the ABCs, called back to them. And we need recalibration. Bruised and battered pastors like me, we need the same thing upbeat and encouraged pastors need. If you're upbeat and encouraged, stay away from me for a day or two. Some of you are thinking that right now. I don't want to meet the upbeat and encouraged guys. I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. Actually, we both need the same thing, don't we? We need clear views of Christ in his beauty, in his glory, in his grace. Brothers, before we're ministers, we're elders, or elders, we are Christian men. And more than anything else, I need to be led by God's words, blessed by God's Spirit, to meet with Jesus Christ. More than anything else, I want to meet with Jesus Christ. To see him in his deity, his sovereignty, in his condescension and grace to care for rebel sinners, in his humility, taking flesh, suffering, dying, my substitute representative redeemer, in his heavenly session reigning at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for me. I need to have the light of Christ shine into my darkness so that I might see myself and be led this week to fresh repentance and to be enabled freshly to believe. I need to see the church in the light of Christ, that being reminded how he loved his bride, I might learn again patience and begin to grow in my love for the church as well. I need to see the lost in the light of Christ. That the one who gave his blood for the salvation of rebels might move me all over again to pursue them with gospel love in Jesus' name. There is no lack in my soul or yours. No besetting sin in my heart or yours. No fear festering in my conscience or yours. 
no insecurity that troubles us, no boast presently misleading us that does not find its perfect remedy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is it the old spiritual says? You can have all the world. Just give me Jesus. Would you make that your prayer with me this week? Day after day and session after session, you can have all the world. But Lord, would you give me Jesus? Give us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. So the theme of our time together this year is the glory of Christ. Very purposefully chosen in the conviction that this is what will be of most help to our souls. I want to ask you then to commit to praying for these few short days together for the ministry of the word as we read it, as we hear it preached, as we sit together under it, that God would work mightily in our midst and show us Christ and show us ourselves and cause us Thursday morning to leave feeling almost as though we had received a second call to gospel ministry. A renewed commission from the king and head of the church to go into all the world in his name and make disciples. To labor faithfully at our posts till he gives us leave to move or till he comes to take us home. So let's pray to that effect, would you please? Our Father, as we bow before you, we come weary, many of us, some of us troubled, many of us discouraged, some disheartened, maybe even ready to quit. And so our prayer is, O oh Lord, we would see Jesus. We pray that you would lead us to the oasis and let us drink till we're full of life-giving water these three days. We pray for Ian Hamilton's ministry. Make him our pastor these three days. We are we're all pastors and elders. And sometimes we've been giving out the word, giving out in ministry, pouring ourselves out, pouring ourselves out. We've almost forgotten how to receive the pastoral care of the word for ourselves. Would you cut through all our defense mechanisms, all the lies we tell ourselves, all the ways we've been trying to protect ourselves and deal with us? Bring us before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ this week and strip all the nonsense away from us and do a work of grace in our hearts. Bring us back to repentance. Bring us back to a place where though we may despair of our gifts and graces, finding no grounds for confidence in ourselves. We've had such views of Jesus, of his sufficiency and worth as your spirit works among us, that we leave utterly confident in him, in his promises, in his faithful use of the means of grace for the good of the people of God and the glory of your name. Oh, pour out your spirit on us. Take hold of each of us, our consciences, our hearts. Show us our blind spots, 
Show us the things we've missed. Show us the lies we tell ourselves. Show us where we've been believing too much of our own publicity. Humble us. Renew us, those of us who are downcast. Bind up the the downcast, the bruised reed and the, the smoking flax. Don't snuff them out. Reignite, fan back into flame our zeal for your glory and our love for your people. Come and deal with us, please, O Lord, as we sit together at the feet of our Savior. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.